This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I'm delighted to be chairing tonight's event uh, to explore with our two writers the dark side of contemporary fiction and to celebrate the launch of Charco Press, a new publisher of Latin American literature in English translation for the first time. I'm so pleased that we've got one of our best and best-loved novelists and short story writers here this evening, uh, Tessa Hadley. Tessa is the author of six novels, most recently The Past, published in 2015, and five collections of short fiction, two of which were co-authored. This year, she published her latest short story collection, Bad Dreams, the title story of which was shortlisted for the 2014 BBC National Short Story Award. She's one of the few British writers to be published regularly by The New Yorker, and last year was awarded the prestigious Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize for Fiction for being, in the words of the judges, one of English's finest contemporary writers who brilliantly illuminates ordinary lives with extraordinary prose that is superbly controlled, psychologically acute, and subtly powerful. And she's been praised most recently by The Guardian as complex and agile. Tessa is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and professor of creative writing at Bath Spa University. Ariana Harvitz is one of the most radical figures in contemporary Argentinian literature. Her prose is characterized by its violence, eroticism, and direct criticism to the cliches surrounding the notions of family and conventional relationships. Born in Buenos Aires in 1977, Ariana studied screenwriting and drama in Argentina and earned a first degree in performing arts from the University of Paris, seventh, sorry, Roman numerals, as well as a master's degree in comparative literature from the Sorbonne. She's taught screenwriting and written two plays which have been staged in Buenos Aires. Her first novel, Die My Love, received rave reviews and was named Best Novel of 2012 by the Argentine daily La Nación. It is currently being adapted for theatre in Buenos Aires and in Israel. She's considered to be at the forefront of the so-called new Argentinian fiction, along with writers such as Man Booker International shortlisted, Samantha Feblin, author of Fever Dreams, who has praised Die My Love as truly original and des- designed to blow the cobwebs off the literary world. I'd also like to introduce Carolina Orloff, co-translator with Sarah Moses of Die My Love and co-founder with Sam McDowell of Charco Press. And Carolina will be interpreting for Ariana this evening. So I'd like to start with readings from our guests. Uh, then we'll move to discussion on just how far one can go with fiction writing. And then there'll be time for questions from the audience. Tessa, would you like to kick mm-hmm. off? Thank you. Yep. Okay, I've chosen a little bit from one of my short stories in Bad Dreams. And because our theme tonight is transgression, uh, this, this is from the title story, which is about a little girl waking up in the middle of the night and walking around in her family home, her, the flat, the basement flat she lives in with her parents and her brother, which doesn't sound very transgressive. But actually, she's never been alone in the place <coughs> in the middle of the night before. And so it feels like something new and dangerous. And then in, the, in her explorations, alone for once, because everybody else is asleep, a child is very rarely alone in the rooms of its life or her life. 
uh, she, she is sort of stirred by this impulse to do something quite crazy and, I suppose, disruptive. Perhaps I should add that this episode is somewhat taken from life. So there we are. <laughs> In their absence, her parents were more distinctly present to her than usual as individuals with their own unfathomable adult preoccupations. She was aware of their lives running backwards from this moment into a past that she could never enter. This moment, too, the one fitted around her now as inevitably and closely as a skin would one day become the past. Its details then would then seem remarkable and poignant and she would never be able to return inside them. The chairs in the lounge, formidable in the dimness, seemed drawn up as if for a spectacle, waiting more attentively than if they were filled with people. The angular recliner built of black tubular steel with lozenges of polished wood for arms. The cone-shaped wicker basket in its round wrought iron frame. The black painted wooden armchair with orange cushions and the low divan covered in striped olive green cotton. The reality of the things in the room seemed more substantial to the child than she was herself. And she wanted, in a sudden passion, to break something, to disrupt this world of her home, sealed in its mysterious stillness where her bare feet made no sound on the lino or the carpets. On impulse, using all her strength, she pushed at the recliner from behind, tipping it over slowly until it was upside down with its top resting on the carpet and its legs in the air, the rubber ferrules on its feet unexpectedly silly in the moonlight, like prim, tiny shoes. Then she tipped over the painted chair so that its cushions flopped out. She pulled the wicker cone out of its frame and turned the frame over, flipped up the goatskin rug. She managed to make very little noise, just a few soft bumps and thuds. When she had finished, though, the room looked as if a hurricane had blown through it, throwing the chairs about. She was shocked by what she'd affected, but gratified, too. The after-sensation of strenuous work tingled in her legs and arms, and she was breathing fast. Her whole body rejoiced in the chaos. Perhaps it would be funny in the morning when her parents saw it. At any rate, nothing, nothing would ever make her tell them that she'd done it. They would never know. And that was funny too. A private hilarity bubbled up in her. Though she wouldn't give way to it, she didn't want to make a sound. And at that very moment, as she surveyed her crazy handiwork, the moon sank below the top of the wall outside, and the room darkened, all its solidity withdrawn. So, Ariana is going to read in Spanish first, <coughs> and then Carolina will read the English translation from Die My Love, which is about a woman living with her in-laws in France who's just, <coughs> just had a baby. And that's probably the more conventional description of this book, which is everything but that. <coughs> it's, el, it's the first uh, chapter. First chapter. Chap. Eh, me recliné sobre la hierba entre árboles caídos y el sol que calienta la palma de mi mano me dio la impresión de llevar un cuchillo con el que iba a desangrarme de un corte ágil en la yugular. Detrás, en el decorado de una casa entre decadente y familiar, 
Podía sentir las voces de mi hijo y mi marido, los dos en cueros, los dos chapoteando en la pileta de plástico azul con el agua a 35 grados. Era un domingo víspera de día feriado. Estaba a pocos pasos de ellos, oculta entre malezas. ¿Cómo es que yo, una mujer débil y enfermiza que sueña con un cuchillo en la mano, era la madre y la esposa de esos dos individuos? ¿Qué iba a hacer? Escondí el cuerpo adentrándome en la tierra. No iba a matarlos. Dejé caer el cuchillo, fui a colgar la ropa como si nada, abroché bien las medias de mi bebé y mi hombre, los calzoncillos y las camisas. Me miré como una campechana ignorante que cuelga ropa y se seca las manos en la falda antes de entrar en la cocina. No se dieron cuenta, la colgada de ropa fue un éxito. Volví a recostarme entre troncos. Ya se corta la madera para la próxima temporada. Behind me, against the backdrop of a house somewhere between dilapidated and homely, I could hear the voices of my son and my husband. Both of them naked, both of them splashing around in the blue paddling pool, the water 35 degrees. It was a Sunday before a bank holiday. I was a few steps away, hidden in the underbrush, spying on them. How could a weak, perverse woman like me, someone who dreams of a knife in her hand, be the mother and wife of those two individuals? What was I going to do? I burrowed deeper into the ground, hiding my body. I wasn't going to kill them. I dropped the knife and went to hang out the washing like nothing had happened. I carefully pegged the socks to the line, my babies and my man's, their underwear and shirts. I looked at myself and saw an ignorant country bumpkin hanging out the laundry and drying her hands on her skirt before returning to the kitchen. They had no idea. Hanging out the clothes had been a success. I lay back down among the tree trunks. They're already choking wood for the cold season. People here prepare for winter like animals. Nothing distinguishes us from them. Take me, an educated woman, a university graduate. I am more of an animal than those half-dead foxes, their faces stained red, sticks, propping their mouths wide open. My neighbor, Frank, a few miles away, the oldest of seven siblings, fired a shotgun into his own arms last Christmas. What a nice surprise it must have been for his pack of kids. But the guy was just following tradition. Suicide by shotgun for his great-grandfather, great-grandfather, grandfather and father. At the very least, you could say it was his turn. And me? A normal woman from a normal family, but an eccentric, a deviant. The mother of one child and with another, though who knows at this point, on its way. I slowly slide a hand into my knickers. And to think I'm the person in charge of my son's education. My husband calls me over for a beer under the pergola and asks, blonde or dark? The baby appears to have shut himself and I've got to go and buy his cake. I bet other mothers would have baked one themselves. Six months, apparently, it's not the same as five or seven. Whenever I look at him, I think of my husband behind me, about to ejaculate on my back, but instead turning me over suddenly and coming inside me. If this hadn't happened, if I'd closed my legs, I grabbed his dick, I wouldn't have to go to the bakery for cream cake or chocolate cake and candles half a year already. The moment other women give birth, they usually say, I can't imagine my life without him now. It's as though he's always been here. Poof. I'm coming, baby. I want to scream, but I sink deeper into the cracked earth. I want to snarl, to howl, but instead, I let the mosquitoes bite me, let them savor my sweetened skin. The sun deflects the silvery reflection of the knife back to me, and I'm blinded. The sky is red, violet, trembling. 
I hear them looking for me, the filthy baby and the naked husband. Mama, dada, poo-poo. My baby's the one who does the talking all night long. Coco, nana, baba. There they are. I leave the knife in the scorched pasture, hoping that when I find it next, it'll look like a scalpel, a feather, a pin. I get up hot and bothered by the, by the tingling between my legs. Blonde or dark? Whatever you're having, my love. We're one of those couples who mechanize the word love, who use it when they despise each other. I never want to see you again, my love. I'm coming, I say, and I'm a fraud of a countrywoman with a red polka dot skirt and split ends. I'll have a blunt beer, I say in my foreign accent. I am a woman who's let herself go, has a mouth full of cavities and no longer reads. Read, you idiot, I tell myself. Read one full sentence from start to finish. Here we are, all three of us together for a family portrait. We toast the happiness of our baby and drink the beers my son is, sorry, and drink the beers. My son in his high chair chewing on a leaf. I put a finger in his mouth and he shrieks, biting me with his gums. My husband wants to plant a tree for the baby's long life and I don't know what to say. I just smile like a fool. Does he have any idea? So many healthy and beautiful women in the area and he ended up falling for me. In that case, a foreigner, someone beyond repair. Maggie out today, isn't it? Seems it's gonna last, he says. I take long swigs from the bottle, breathing through my nose and wishing, quite simply, that I were dead. Transgression is the theme of our discussion this evening, and it's something that applies to both our writers, whether it's the more um, overtly visceral with Ariana, or I hate to use the word quietly, or the more quietly subversive <laughs> with Tessa. I'd really like to talk about how, from a writer's point of view, there might be two ways of, of looking at it. What are the things one can't write about, so the rules? but also how much transgression is it about writing itself, so breaking the rules of what the novel is supposed to do. And maybe if you'd like to answer that question first. Okay, okay, that's, I mean, you're asking huge questions, Catherine. I know. <laughs> there never were any good novels written that didn't break the rules yeah. because anything that simply obeyed all the rules, either the rules of representing motherhood as mm -hmm. cheerful and gorgeous or whatever, would just be boring. It would, it, would be, it would be routine. It would be nothing to break the mold. So obviously, the great tradition of great fiction in English, but I, I'm absolutely certain in Spanish and in French and in every language, is of a succession of individuals who have broken rules mm. in order to write something that's interesting. So that applies with redoubled force, I suppose, to women writers that write through complicatedly from <coughs> Jane Austen to George Eliot, uh, to the Brontes to George Eliot, etc., to Elizabeth Bowen, to Margaret Drabble. Um, women writers have taken the pretty picture of motherhood and womanhood and marriedness and sort of smashed it with more or less sans foi, <laughs> really. I th kind think of you've absolutely done that with your first, from your first novel onwards, where a woman has a domestic setup which she's very settled in, but she abandons it for a teenage. I mean, the problem dream. for women writing now is that women have been doing that forever. Mm. That you, 
you know, it's very difficult to write a novel of adultery now because that's been done. That was, that was done very, very well with Madame Bovary and then Anna Karenina. But those were men writing, obviously, about Yeah, but women. they did it superbly. So, they did it very well. To want to ask and talk a bit about Ariana's book about motherhood and the way that you write about it, it's a thing that isn't often <coughs> spoken of in such terms. So when uh, women are supposed to write about being mothers, the, the expectation is that negative feelings will be avoided. So I want to ask you why you chose to write in this way about these very complex emotions that come from being, being a mother. Sí, bueno, buenas noches. <laughs> eh, sí, quizás habría que preguntarse antes de qué es la transgresión, qué es ser un artista, ¿no? So, she's, what gives you, sorry, I have to be a better version of my here. Uh, good evening. And she wonders um, that before translation, uh, so before transgression, one should wonder what it is to be an artist. O quizás es la misma pregunta. Or maybe it's the same question. Pero en todo caso, me parece que un artista, nace un artista cuando nace alguien que rechaza profundamente la convención y por ende la época. So, an artist for her is born when um, someone is willing to break tra 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 sorry, tradition and transgress an era also as well, convention and transgress an era. Claro, porque hoy estaban en National, la gallery, National, National Gallery, la zona de retratos, y veíamos cuadros de 1700, 1800, y eran transgresores, pero yo me preguntaba, ¿cómo lo hicieron? So she, today she was at the National Gallery, and she was looking at paintings from 1700s, 1800s, and, and could see the transgression, and was wondering how they did that, how back then they were transgressing. Claro, entonces lo que pensé cuando me di cuenta que no podía vivir sin escribir era no tanto cómo transgredo los tópicos de la época, la maternidad, la, la, el matrimonio, los, los deberes de la época, sino cómo crear una obra que transgreda, pero no, no los tópicos, sino en la forma. ¿no? So when she she realized she was becoming a writer, she wasn't um, so concerned about transgress, transgressing topics themselves, like motherhood, marriage, etc., but the form, transgressing through the form about those topics, if that's clear. Mm. So trans having a transgressive form to do that. Y pienso que lo, los artistas que me interesan a mí, Celine, Poe, Gombrowit, Glenn Good como pianista, son artistas que se ubicaban por dentro, pero sobre todo por fuera de una tradición, que son artistas que no se los puede... Asociar un linaje claro, ¿no? So the the artist Ariana saying that she's interested in are artists that are both re, sorry that remain outside our tradition, like not well Poe and Baudelaire, Baudelaire and Celine, but also someone like Glenn Gould, so music as well. Some artists that remain outside tradition that are hard to categorize. So we that sort of brings me back to some something that you've said quite recently about the writing self and about how it how that sort of process of coming to be a writer or to be an artist. You said, and you said, though it's a cliché, you said that in the wings, you, your writing self was waiting for a long time. And the secret self waiting in the wings, as you've described it, was a haunted, fugitive, shamed figure, which that description of the writing self uh, has a lot in comparison, I think, with the, the narrator of Ariana's novel. Yes, 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 that's... That's true. I mean, I think what, what I was describing, it was in a little piece I wrote for The Guardian about my writing day, and I was saying how I was writing that piece just after Christmas when I had been busy being actually a mother and a grandmother and a cook and a host 
kind of bed maker and all that stuff, and that my writing <laughs> self was waiting, waiting in the wings. And I think I, I'm interested in whether men feel an equivalent to that. It's, I, I, but I, I suppose they do. I suppose they have a, I'm sure they have a public self, a social self, and then a writing self. But women probably feel that quite acutely, the divide between those two selves. And then I was, I was talking about in the days when I was writing not very well, I was writing and not achieving and not succeeding, not writing anything that was very good, I did have a feeling that that secret self was a shaming figure, slightly humiliating and yet definitely part of me. I mean, I think to, to pick up some of the points Ariana made about the transgressiveness of art intrinsically, she's, that's probably absolutely true. I mean, you're just not going to be any good unless you are looking at things with a cold eye instead of as a mere receptor of, of given norms. But it may be that writers certainly fall into two, two kinds, though that's too simplistic. And I wonder if in an interesting way you've put me and Ariana together because she is much more formally revolutionary, revolutionary than I am. Um, in some ways, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a writer who mediates whatever dangerous stuff is going on in an ironic prose with a narrative distance. There's something very visceral and straight into the jugular, straight into the veins of Ariana. We both know. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I think we got all that from the excerpt. That was yes. but, but your stories are on the surface about, you know, in terms of the plot, they're about transgressing, people misbehaving, yeah. rule breaking, the, and the consequences, right. but they're also in a more abstract sense about almost also what Ariana is also writing about, which are about the breaking of boundaries between yeah. past and present, and that, I would that's say... That's what's really lovely about collapse, those two traditions. You're, you're so right. I'm, I know I'm, I'm talk, I'll stop talking mm. in a minute, but just that's so true that Mary Wollstonecraft, on the one hand, is saying revolution, total change, everything turned upside down and, and women should overturn their lives. She is right. Jane Austen is saying, you know, everything's funny and let's go on the way we are, but let's watch women actually overturning conventions as in being amusing, seeing through things. And both of those women writers have huge revolutionary perceptions to share with us mm. and one of them is in a radical form and one of them is in a form that looks superficially conservative but is actually got inside it this this disruptive energy that is that matches Mary Wollstonecraft and we need both we need the the, the shoot yourself in the head <laughs> juggler writers and, and we need the other writers too yeah so can we talk a bit more about the breaching of the psychological boundaries which is so obviously apparent in, in, your, in your work, Ariana, and how, what it's like to write about a mind out of balance. Ariana is saying that this shows that the fact that these two women writers doesn't mean that they, that they write similar yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, 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 it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that they, they have to be grouped together. Sí, no, creo que lo, 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 la primera vez que escribí fue no hace tanto, a los 30, 
la primera novela a los 33 años y se la llevé a un escritor muy conocido en Argentina y me dijo, acá hay una historia, pero la lengua está muerta, no hay una lengua propia. So the first time um, Ariana finished the novel was when she was 33 or so, and she took it to a famous writer in Argentina who said, uh, this is a good story, but the language is dead. Y tenía razón, la lengua estaba muerta, por ende para mí yo estaba muerta. Y me di cuenta que la misión que tenía era escuchar, crear, si es que iba a poder, una lengua propia. Hasta ese momento no iba a tener nunca una novela. So she's saying she agreed with them, she didn't realize it then, but after that she, she thought in order to create something new she'd have to create a new, a new language. Mm -hmm. Y hacía todo lo que cumplía con los deberes que me decían mis profesores, mis dramaturgia, que yo me formé en la dramaturgia, me decían, andá y mira el bosque, andá y observá, iba y observaba y después no lo podía traducir literariamente. So, so she, did, she did her homework, uh, she, she has a formation in playwright, playwriting, and she would go and look at the forest and then come back and write something, but, but it wasn't um, an expression of what she was feeling. Mm. Hacía todo lo que había que hacer. Si she había did everything que, right. Agarrar un arma, ir a cazar. She, she grabbed weapons and went hunting. <laughs> Y, eh, pero no, no, era, era imposible. Y como sucede con, con, como sucede con algún fenómeno, y un día eh, eh, encontré, encontré la voz, encontré la, encontré la lengua, encontré el entramado semántico, no sé cómo decirlo. Mm, until one day she found the voice, she found that language, she found that kind of... El estilo. The style, yeah. Claro. ¿De dónde vienen los personajes? ¿Cómo saberlo? Eh, How does one know from where the characters are coming? Yo, eh, es, las tres novelas, esta especie de trilogía, la de Mental, bueno, Matate Amor y Precoz, son las tres, eh, una primera persona, ¿no? De, de, un, de un fluir, de una, una conciencia, de una mente, ¿no? So, Arien, eh, Matate Amor o Die My Love is the first of, uh, of what's been called an involuntary trilogy, uh, and the three novels, um, in the three novels there's, there's a first voice, there's, there's a stream of consciousness narrating. Eh, no sé de dónde salió esa voz, eh, la arrastré del piano, la, la, la encontré de los, de los ciertos autores o poetas desesperados, la encontré en la desesperación, pero no sabría. She doesn't quite know where that voice came from, but it came from, from desperate uh, piano players and desperate poets, and that's, that's where the voice comes mm. from. No, no hay, no, no hay, no hay fórmula, ¿no? There's no formula for that. No. So when we talk about stream of consciousness, I mean, obviously, Virginia Woolf is the most obvious exponent of that. We think about a ruminative writer who's making it up as they go along, perhaps. Uh, but actually, it's a very forensic and precise way of writing. Uh, you know, you have the formal constraint, perhaps, which might be more obvious with your writing, Tessa. But you also have the, um, I don't know, the, the, the control over the writing itself. You have to control yes, your... Yes your figure, your narrator and that voice. Sí, por eso es tan peligroso confundir la vida con el arte, ¿no? She agrees with what you say, Catherine, and she said that's why it's so dangerous to confuse life and fiction. Porque siempre, aunque haya madres que abandonan a los hijos y mujeres infieles... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. 
Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Es, es cierto, eso sucede en la vida, pero en el arte sucede que hay que crear todo el proceso de estilización, artificializarlo. So, although it's, it's an everyday thing that uh, mothers may abandon their child, although they, they can be unfaithful women, that the, the, the point is to find to stylize that, to find the style, to narrate that. Yes, it's true. Every phrase I write having a control absolute of the commas, of the punctuation, of the words. For there to exist that kingdom, I have to control every word. It's like an empire inside. So she's, she's saying she's, she controls every word, every comma, every, the punctuation. She controls very much in order to create that empire. Para que exista el contrapunto con el desequilibrio mental, ¿no? So that that counterpoint with the with madness or men mental instability is allowed to exist. For that to exist, there has to be control. Y es cierto que me ha pasado que en algunas eh, correcciones de algunas ediciones cambiaban las comas y entonces la novela perdía sentido, ¿no? So she, she's and with the, and the sí. and uh, she, found in in reworking in different editions or yeah publications of the same novels that the editors would change the commas and for her that would lose the meaning of, of it would be a new sense no new sentido yeah. and I have to add there as a co-translator of the novel that hmm. at the very end we were and I've got the editor here as well um, <laughs> we had to revise the opening and the ending because Ariane said no 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 that punctuation cannot be like that and we, it, that was interesting in itself because I think that's right down to the title of the book as well, because we talked about die, my love, and that very important comma, which, which creates an active voice, it's very assertive, it's actually the authorial and, and narrate, narrational, if you like, control, isn't it? And we, we, so how it's interesting that what, what, it, what your title in English feels, in, in a certain sense, quite gestural, quite rhetorical almost, and I feel, listening to you read as well, that there is something in Spanish, something that is intrinsic to the Spanish language, which I don't understand, but I can feel it has a strong gesture, whereas English has a, a dampening gesture. It has a habitual irony on the whole, doesn't it? And Spanish has something that, that's, that's grander. That's right. And sometimes reading in translation, reading Spanish in translation, it can sound a little overblown in English, and yet you look then at the Spanish words on the other side of the page and you know it looks right, it looks good. And that's just something that's intrinsic to the two languages. Do you think that's true? I mean, Carolina, that's almost a question for you, in fact, because you're mediating between the two languages. Sí, toda traducción es una tragedia en ese sentido, porque hay una obra que se perdió, que es la obra. Every translation is a tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. There's a work in the middle that's lost, a piece of art. Uh, but there's another one that's regained. Yes, quite. Exactly. No, Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to read you. So we have like to, to think about it. No, quiero dejar yeah. sin trabajo a los traductores. No, don't leave us unemployed. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I also like to think of translation as a work of dual authorship. And I think, you, as a translator, Carolina, you will really respond to that. But it really strikes me reading your book that the fact that you, um, the, oh, the sort of playwriting uh, aspect of. Uh, is very strong there, and what you talk about rhetorical and the, the declarative mm. nature. That, that's actually, the good word. That's what the um, word I was of feeling. Of prose, yeah. Is... Sí, claro, absolutamente. Mm. Sí, sí, absolutamente. No, mira, cuando miro los documentales sobre los pianistas y uno ve a Orowitz, el pianista Orowitz, antes de entrar a escena, ve que cambia, modifica la manera en que se toca la tecla y si, 
para el concierto y es, corrige la manera en que se toca la tecla de una o de otra. Creo que esa es la precisión de un escritor. ¿no? She's men Ariana's mentioning this um, piano play player, Orowich, uh, who before going on the stage looks at every key in the piano and, and changes the word that you, you press that. Sí, tiene que controla exactamente cómo se va a apretar en ese concierto. Ah, he controls before playing the way in which he's going to press each, each key on the piano. Ah, really la precisión que debería tener para mí un escritor, ¿no? And that's the precision that for Ariana a writer needs. Y respecto a la dramaturgia, es cierto, yo cuando escribo estos libros tengo la sensación de escribirlos con, con, eh, con el dramatismo de la escena que, que tiene la dramaturgia, es decir, la construyo con la arquitectura de la dramaturgia. And when she, she writes, when she's written these three novels, she's always thinking in, in, almost in the architecture of a, of a, theater, of a theater play. Claro, lo, 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 la lengua es literaria, pero lo que pasa internamente en la escena y las relaciones entre los personajes son vienen de la dramaturgia. So the, the language is it's literary or, or, or prose, but the inter interrelations and how the characters relate to each other comes from from a play playwright. It's tradition. a dramatic monologue, really, isn't it? Diamond. De hecho, están siendo representadas. And, and in fact, the um, the first two novels are being staged at the moment. Yes. yes. Tessa, you talk a lot in interviews about truth and how we compare the relationship of fiction to reality, and we've touched on it there. Um, and also, the relationship of characters' experiences to reality. Do you think there's a sort of two things going on there when you're? I mean, it's very, very difficult representing reality in fiction, which sometimes, if writers are are um, very postmodernist, they talk about realism with a little bit of contempt, as if there is this easy photographic thing you do where you just write down what happens. And of course, actually, any good piece of writing of whatever kind, the effort to try and make it feel true, and I think this is, Ariana was actually talking about this with her analogy with playing the piano and, or, or, or with, with finding, that, or with her discussion of her early efforts to find the true voice for her character. It's enormous, the translation process in which a page of writing feels as if it's alive, as if it might mm. be something in life, as if people might really have said that. In fact, of course, it's incredibly artificial. I mean, if you really did just dangle a microphone into a room and left it while people talked on for 20 years, that, that would not, I mean, that, that would not be what fiction reads like. And it, anyway, anyway, that would only capture one tiny, it would capture voices, but it wouldn't capture presence and physicality and smells and tastes and moods and everything mm -hmm. else. Um, so it's very difficult telling the truth. And I'd, I'm not sure that, that making a page of writing true bears very much relation to, you know, a, a, a fact of journalism being true. It may even be, I mean, this I think for people who write memoirs, some of my friends have written memoirs, and they say, sometimes in order to make the page of writing true, you have to actually take the fact that happened and alter it. And that's, that's a complex... It is complex. And I think Emily Dickinson said, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Tell it slant. Which, in a way, perhaps... Mm. Is mm. most faithful to to making stories up, to fictionalizing. Yeah, but at the same time, the first thing you said that that is that is very fundamental. That what one's tr all the time when you are 
trying to get that page right, making all those distortions, varying from the original, if you like, your test is, does it feel truthful? Does that feel like what could happen? What could have happened? What somebody would... I mean, literally, I've been tussling with this particular scene today <laughs> and just thinking, what Try it out sounds us. fake? Um, probably not ready to, but you know, what, what I wrote mm. sounds fake and I don't like it and there's, it smells wrong, it tastes wrong. Um, and trying and trying again to put something down on the page that in some way felt true, but I don't, I don't even know what I'm testing but it But it's against. a very physical reaction you describe. It is very, which it, is interesting it seems because to be very physical. We've talked about your prose style and, and yet the sort of physicality of it doesn't leap out in a way that Ariana's no, So it's interesting no. that you yourself yeah. have a physical reaction yeah. to your writing. And yeah. Ariana, you must also have this. It must be quite, perhaps I'm being a bit patronising, exhausting to write about some of the things that you've written about um, as a writer. When you actually... <coughs> Because it's almost this woman is kind of spewing quite a lot of stuff out. Siempre me gustaba una frase que decían de Edgar Allan Poe, que decían, o los biógrafos decían en todo caso, no vivió su vida, vivió su obra. She likes this phrase um, about Edgar Allan Poe that um, it says that he didn't live his life, he, he lived his work. Su, su obra, ¿no? Sí, su obra. Y, y, y me, me parecía interesante estos artistas que, que, en los que quizás pareciera que no hubo vida, pero hubo obra. He finds this kind of art is interesting where maybe the life didn't come through but the work, what they wrote, is what, what remained. Sí, y también una, una, un escritor argentino que se llama Bioy Casares que decía, solo hay dos aventuras, vivir y escribir. And um, Bioy Casares, or maybe the Borgesians here, know, who said that there's only two adventures in life, to, to, to live and to write. Entonces, me da la sensación de que yo, que es muy autobiográfico, pero bueno, me da la sensación de que tuve siempre como dos vidas, hasta que empecé a escribir y desde que empecé a escribir. And for Ariana, she feels that she had two lives, and the life until she began to write, and the life after she began writing. Y la vida que tengo Does that make sense? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Y desde que empecé a escribir, lo que yo siempre pienso es que uno escribe para huir de la vida y huye de la vida para escribir, y todo el tiempo está en ese doble movimiento del cual no puedo salir. So for her, um, life, she escapes life to write, and she escapes writing in order to live to live life so for that's a real dichotomy it's also a very powerful expression uh, mm. it sort of echoes some of the things that you've said about well, how you came to be a writer and we were talking a bit downstairs about how that happened well I know I know it's a similar thing I know that strangely when I wasn't managing to write my life didn't seem real enough mm. and then when I did when I began to write something that at least felt true whatever it was worth, it felt true, then my life seemed real. And that's very odd. It's actually quite insane. But thank goodness most people don't feel it, because it, otherwise everybody would have to be a writer in order to, to be alive. Well, quite thank goodness things. that lots of people are just living. But, but there is something strange about writers, that they don't feel that life is quite real unless they are all the time doing this work of translating it into writing, which is a little mad. Claro, claro, por eso se dice, no es que Ionesco sea absurda, es que la vida es Ionesquiana, es al revés. So she's saying, that, that's why, uh, it's not for her that Ionesco, Ionesco sí, no, sí, <laughs> that Ionesco writes the absurd, it's that 
life is very uh -huh. UNESCO. O vegetiana, o pinamericana. Es al revés. I've just been writing something actually in my new novel about that, an argument between a man and a woman where the woman is a bit of a realist. She's actually a painter, not a writer. And she tries to paint real things, which we've already said is very, very difficult. And the man is saying, that's boring. Why are you doing that conventional thing? Why aren't you more modern, more postmodern? And she says, to be absurd, you have to have the absurdity in you. Otherwise, you're just putting it on as a style, and that's terrible. And I, I, I was very pleased to come to that rather simplistic formula. I thought that was very true, that it, in times I've certainly felt, I'm such a, you know, I'm an old-fashioned writer in certain ways, and I felt the pressure to be more modern. And then I think, but in me, this vocabulary, this style, this stylistic vocabulary is the truth of what I am. And if I put on the other thing, it would be purely an attitude. It would look artificial. Fake. And I'm yeah. sure Ariana ah. would feel the same yeah. about if she tried to change the style of her writing. Claro. No, a mí lo que me lo que me parece más interesante de la escritura a nivel personal es eh, que uno puede vengarse y matar a la gente que tiene alrededor. ¿no? For, for adding to this, what she finds very interesting about writing is that she can actually kill people that she has y vengarse, around ¿no? and, and, and take revenge. Mm. Eh, con toda impunidad, ¿no? Y, y no ir a la cárcel. With complete immunity and not go to jail, which mm. surprises her. And you don't know this Obviously. thing yet, Ariana. You can also be young when you're not young and do all kinds of things. It's lovely. Tessa, you are equally acclaimed as a short story writer and as a novelist, which is a quite a rare thing, actually, in fiction to be so successful and um, critically acclaimed in both. I'm not going to ask you which you prefer because that's a banal question. I'm sure you don't. But I mean, what are the what are the differences? Just to you as a, as, a, um, as a writer? I began with short stories. Mm. I could do them first. That was the first thing I've, I had success with. I'm not talking about external success, although actually that too. Um, and they seemed to me very... They, they actually seemed to me easier, which you're not supposed to say, but difficult as they are, the novel form seems to me even more difficult mm. to actually sustain. sustain the intensity and the power across a long book is, is very hard. Um, a, a, a story has, it has to be very tight and very curled and, and have a great deal of point. I suppose what's lovely about a novel, it's, it can't be so irresponsible as a short story, it has, <laughs> but it has follow through. You, you pose one thing in a novel and then you need to follow that up. So if you, if you posit that, well, how does that play out mm. a, a week later or five years later? So to only write short stories for me would feel like starting over and over and over again and kind of getting away with it. And I'm glad that novels make me follow through, but at the same time, I, I love the brevity and the freedom it's and the irresponsibility of the story. Liberation, perhaps, of the short form. Yeah, very, it's very liberating. Yeah. And so, Ariana, I want to ask you about being a writer from Argentina. who You live in, in France, and how we talked a bit about how do you, what, uh, do you feel that you are a writer from Latin America? 
uh, with all of those sort of literary antecedents? Or how, how would you kind of, what are your influences as a writer? Ah, eh, um, sí, sí, sí. No, pensé que me preguntaba sobre si me siento como me considero argentina en la tradición. Supongo, sí, supongo que, eh, sí. Bueno, me formé con los autores que se formaron todos. Eh, eh, es decir, primero fui, traté de copiar el estilo de Borges y fui malamente borgiana. Traté de copiar el, el, el estilo de Cortázar y fue malamente Cortázar. Es decir, intenté escribir con los autores que todos los argentinos intentan escribir. So she, she grew up or formed herself as a writer, trying to be a, a bad Borges or a bad Cortázar, like every Argentinian writer tries to do in the, in the kind of workshops and, and creative writing. En ese sentido, tengo los mismos padres que hemos tenido todos en Argentina, ¿no? Los so we all, she's saying we all have the same parents as, as Argentinian writers and readers mm. have. Pero si tuviera que decir qué es lo que heredé más que quizás Pizarnik o Storni o, o Campo, es que heredé una cierta forma de la violencia argentina. So if she had to, rather than specify specific names of influences like Ocampo, Pizarnik, these are all f female um, authors, it's more, she would say she inherited the violence of Argentina. Mm -hmm. Argentina si tuviera, violence. Creo, no, si tuviera que, no, es difícil ser crítico de la propia escritura mientras uno la escribe sin distancia histórica, ¿no? Pero si tuviera que pensar eh, qué hay en mi prosa de argentino, aunque también me siento judía, polaca y todas las otras... De, de, y ahora francesa. So it's very hard to criticize one one's own writing while you're still a writer. So there's no historic uh, mm. distance there. Um, but to, and also to, to try and grasp this Argentinianness, what's Argentinian in the writing. But for her, it's being Argentinian and Jewish and Polish as well. Pero por supuesto que la violencia es universal. Por ejemplo, Matate Amor la entendían casi de la misma manera en Israel, en el conflicto de Medio Oriente, que no han tenido dictaduras. Es decir, es otra violencia. Sin embargo, hay una violencia universal. So the Coming back to the idea of the Argentinian violence, she also, she also thinks that there's a violence, that the violence in, in itself is universal. So, um, Die My Love has also been translated into Hebrew, and it, when it was read in Israel, they, they understood that violence straight away. Pero bueno, cada nación, cada patria, cada pueblo tiene, cada familia, y cada pareja tiene su forma particular de violencia, y Argentina tiene la suya. So, each nation, uh, each, each country, each um, family, each partnership has their own violence. Y Argentina, bueno, y entonces, Argentina has its own creo que violence, eso está en el lenguaje, si tuviera que decir eso, que... And it's a way of expressing itself in, in literature, too, I think. And, yes. Claro, y, y después ayer fue muy emocionante en la embajada argentina aquí en Londres. So yesterday we had an event in the Argentinian embassy here in London. Fue muy emocionante para mí porque lo, el público, los lectores, entonces eran todos exiliados, ¿no? sí, la mayoría de hace 10, 20, 30 años y todos hablábamos un argentino, un español totalmente distinto de diferentes décadas. ¿no? And speaking about the language that um, in the public there were Argentinians that had been living here for 40, 30. Mm. 10 years, and we all spoke the same Spanish, but very different at the same time. Y cuando los escuché en el humor, en la manera de interrumpir, en la violencia que tenían, me sentí argentina, tan argentina, me quería parar a cantar el himno. So when she, she heard the different styles of, of speaking and the different um, ways of interrupting, and in a way, the, the small violence, she felt very Argentinian, that she wanted to stand up and sing the anthem. Okay, so maybe we'll have a moment for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tessa's sort of um, prolific writing. Have you written short stories as well as um, novels? Do you write in a short form? Ah, nunca, 
nunca escribí cuentos, nunca escribí poemas. Le, lo único que, que he escrito en definitiva es son estas, esta, esta trilogía eh, que sí, se ubican creo a mitad de camino, son novelas breves, se llaman novel, pero que tienen, eh, que son quizás obras de teatro encubiertas, creo yo. So she's never she's never written um, short stories or poems. Um, that she's only written these three novels, which for her also have a lot of drama play, play, plays mm. in themselves, kind of encumbered. Y tienen esa condensación. Creo que nunca pueden superar las 150 páginas, porque como decías antes, la escribo con una especie de de aceleración, de violencia, de ritmo frenético que luego si escribirse más me moriría, no se puede. And the, the, the three of them are quite short, so they have been con considered novels. Um, so she said she couldn't go beyond the 150 pages because there's a, there's a, a rhythm, a frenzy mm. in, in her style that she, she couldn't do it as a, as a writer. En este sentido yo que me formé también, eso también es argentino, me formé en la UBA, en la Universidad de Buenos Aires y ahí también heredé la manera de pensar, eso también es argentino, me formé con el modelo aristotélico que estas, estas novelas no respetan porque empiezan en el clímax, digamos. Mm. So, she's saying, she's, this is very Argentinian as well, that she went to the, to the University of Buenos Aires and she's adopted or learned from that an Aristotelian um, unit or mode of, of writing. Um, and I've forgotten what else she said. What? Y estas novelas no respetan, <laughs> como si todo el tiempo quisieran estar en el clímax. Ah, ¿no? sorry, yes. And, uh, and she, she goes against that, so all her novels start in the climax. They don't have this... Build up. Yeah. Pero sostener el clímax mm. más de 100 páginas es imposible. But to, to sustain that climax beyond 100 pages yeah. is impossible. Yeah. And so it's interesting that well, we talked a bit about your stories uh, and uh, about how the New Yorker kind of published, uh, concentrates very much on the... What the Englishness of them, and we've been talking a bit about sort of nationalities a writer or how that comes out in your work. Hmm. Do you feel that very consciously? Um... Yeah, reasonably consciously. <laughs> I, I sort of know I, some of the particularly short story writers that I love best, but also novelists I love best are the English women writers of the mid 20th century. And a lot of them were writing about an England or an Ireland or a Britain that was really quite hierarchical and contained compared to the one we live in. So what I always hope I'm doing, think I'm doing, is slightly, with, a, with a, just a tinge of parody, borrowing something quite tight and mm. formal in that English tradition, but trying to relay in it To, to put on the page, to capture inside that form sprawling, inchoate modernity, including something global. That's a really hard thing to it's do. It's a big I mean, ask for yourself, isn't it? It's a big, yeah, but it's what's, in, it's what's in our heads. We're yeah. watching telly all the time. We know what's going on everywhere. Now, how do you put that into a book? You could write a very pious book about how awful it is to be a child soldier in Liberia, but... The likelihood is you'll write something sentimental and false. Mm. So how do you put that consciousness into a little tight form? That really interests me. So I, I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to make marks inside something relatively tight which gesture to something global and vast. Like little shaming marks that say... I can't write about that in a way. I'm not saying but encompassing marks. You can write about so much. But, but, but what, what one wants to write down is the incapacity of us 
to encompass all the things we know. We, we go on living small lives because that's all human beings are actually programmed to do. It's all, we, you know, it's all we're good at is little parochial lives. And yet we have this strange superfluity of informedness. That's, that's an interest, that is an interesting thing to try and write. I don't pretend to have solved it because I think it's very difficult. No, que quería decir que eh, algo que decía Celine, el escritor, que decía en el siglo XIX, la literatura francesa, ¿no? por ejemplo, el, el, la, la misión alta de la, de la novelística de la novela, por ejemplo, para Balzac era contar qué sucedía con los médicos en el campo, en las zonas rurales, para Flaubert contar qué pasaba con la infidelidad en esa sociedad tan, tan estructurada. So she's going back to the, to French writers in the 19th century, such as uh, uh, Balzac. Their, their interests were, for example, writing about the doctor, the day-to-day -day life of the doctors, and Flaubert, and Flaubert con la with infidelity, mm. writing about or Zola, Emile Zola. Claro, y eso es del siglo XIX. Pareciera que en el siglo XX la misión de, la, de las novelas era, obviamente, romper con la forma, romper con la gramática. Ahí está Joyce o bueno, obviamente Proust, Céline mismo, ¿no? And in the 20th century, the mission of the writer was to break with that tradition, mm -hmm. to break with the form, mm -hmm. to Joyce. break with, with, with that tradition, with, like Joyce, for example. Mm -hmm. Céline Proust. Céline claro. Proust. Y bueno, no, no, no lo sé, pero digo, ¿cuál sería la misión, la alta misión de la novela, de la como forma acabada de arte? ¿Cuál es la misión estética y por ende política en el siglo XXI? And she wonders what is the mission in the 21st century mm -hmm. of... of aesthetic and also political, therefore political, um, of, of the 21st century novel. Claro, claro. cuando visito un museo y que siempre uno va del, del siglo XV, XIV, XIV, XV, XVI, XVII, XVIII, XIX, XX, hasta llegar a las vanguardias, yo voy siguiendo la evolución, entre comillas, del arte, entiendo las vanguardias, pero siempre después viene el signo de interrogación y ahora, ¿no? So when she goes to an art museum, she can she, she sees all the different centuries and she sees the, the the traditions of the tradition and the breaking of the tradition and the and the avant-garde. But then there's always the question mark after after that. So what do we do as yeah, writers? Everything's probably right for reinvention. Um, anyway, I'd just like to say thank you very much to Tessa Hadley and Ariana Harvitz and Carolina Orloff for the fascinating discussion on dark fiction. Thank, thank you, you very Catherine. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 